Mustafa and Ken here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast. Alert Medic One response. Welcome back to Alert Medic 1, everyone. Uh, today, we've got an exciting episode for you. We're going to be talking about a bill in Connecticut that is proposing the mandatory hold or the potential mandatory hold of anybody who receives naloxone after an opiate overdose by police. Uh, basically, the idea behind it is that the police get there, somebody's received naloxone, whether it's bystander, police, EMS. And the police then have the option to put somebody onto a, a, a evaluation for a psych hold up to 72 hours if the ED physician agrees to that. So they're compelling transport for these people, uh, or planning to. And I'm going to let Moose bring up some of the specifics about who's sponsoring it and where we got the information, and we'll go from there. And for the record, as of now, we don't condone anything here we're not supporting or uh anything like that we're just calling to uh, we're, we're bringing to light what we found on a reddit post which ken will give credit to so um it's a connecticut connecticut house bill 6581 um we won't go through the 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 whole summer we'll just do the summary here the summary is to allow a police officer to take a person who appears to be incapacitated by drugs or due to a medical emergency into protective custody and have such person brought to a treatment facility or hospital. Um, I mean, from the surface, it doesn't seem any different than an emergency petition, correct? Right. Correct. So, um, and we can, I mean, do you want me to just go into the, the Reddit post? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, so Ken sent this to me, uh, uh, well, man, what, was a couple weeks ago now. Yeah. Um, so credit goes to, uh, so the r slash EMS uh, subreddit. Uh <laughs> The user Godless Portrait. I didn't read their username until now. Um, but basically, they made this post that says, uh, for our Connecticut responders and anyone else who may be interested, legislators this week, Thursday, will be discussing House Bill 6581. House Bill 6581 will allow uh, law enforcement officers to place any person under the influence or sus- suspected to be under the influence in protective custody. Uh, uh, I don't know what pre, pre-paper slash 72-hour hold means. P-R-E-E paper. Local terminology, okay. I assume. Like when people say Baker acted. Okay. Baker acted. Like everyone's supposed to know what that means. This was created by the Enfield Police Chief and State Rep Carol Hall as a way to mandate transport of patients who received Narcan and they have vowed to bring it forward every legislative session until it passes. Uh, please consider reaching out to your state rep regarding this issue. Personally, I believe this will cause a dangerous erosion of the public's trust in EMS. We, out, uh, we outlawed making arrests at the scene of an overdose for this very reason. We want people to call us when they need us. The hospitals will not hold these patients. They will clear them and allow them to AMA immediately against medical advice immediately, meaning they receive an ambulance and hospital bill for service they didn't want in the first place. In fact, it's been well studied that overdoses following Narcan are very uncommon. I don't know about that one. Um, I mean, they did cite, they did just publish two PubMed links here. Uh, and then it says police are not medical providers as it stands. This is a discussion between EMS and a physician prior to the patient refusing care. Um, that was cool. There are checks and balances in place to keep these patients safe that uh, need no interruption by law enforcement. 
Um, I think they mean that need no. Okay. Uh, EMS speaking out against this bill last year saved it from progressing to law. And then there's a quick update. She publicly states that there is no plan to improve mental health services at this time. They believe this will push the hospitals to, imp- to improve mental health care. Which if you go to uh, the representative's Facebook page, she, she does explicitly state that uh, on that page. So that is uh, out of her own mouth. So what do you think about that, Josh? Uh, I, I agree with the poster that it is going to erode our trust with the public on this topic. Um, it's hard enough to get the public to get the patients that we're interacting on in these situations to trust us to begin with because um, while we are not we are often confused with uh, other public safety professionals like law enforcement Uh, we're lumped into the same basket and they believe that we are going to uh, contribute to them being arrested or have charges brought against them or have something negative brought to light in their future because of our interaction with them. So if we're going to then force them to go to the hospital, even though it's not us that is forcing them, it is a uh, requirement of the police to do this. We are the ones that are facilitating that transport and are looked at as, as part of this uh, problem in their eyes of the, the patient, the problem being that they have to go to the hospital and possibly be there for 72 hours. These patients range from your... Um, homeless, you're uh, um, impoverished to your very wealthy patients. It, there is no demographic that is specifically affected by the opiate epidemic. Um, and a lot of these patients, uh, from just anecdotal experience, can I'm sure you can attest to the same, and Moose can attest to the same. Most of them, when the time comes, do not wish to be transported and if there is a reason for them to be transported in, a, in another medical condition or injury, there is a fight involved or there is uh, a lot of resistance <coughs> to going to the hospital because they don't want to be lumped in to this demographic that, unfortunately, they already are a part of, but they don't sometimes want to believe they're a part of. So, And there's so much other, I mean, uh, a, a lot of the times I've had to have had this happen to me, they don't have insurance, right? So they, they they're like they can't they they can't foot the bill. They don't want to foot the bill. Um, and I think a lot of this, I, the, the one thing that came to mind was the whole point of EMS being judicious with Narcan was so that the patient didn't wake up so we can get him to the hospital, you know. But that kind of changed when. Um, and I'm not saying don't mind the the puppy in the back. Uh, that's what that sound is. Oh god. <laughs> But um, yeah, so we that that paradigm kind of changed when you know we gave law enforcement um, Narcan, which I think is a great thing. Um, but a lot of times we were finding people that were already awake by the time we got there. Yeah, I mean, my big worry with this is that people are going to die, you know, because somebody's going to overdose, and the bystanders are going to say, "Oh, we can't call nine one one because you know they, they could get arrested. They're going to make them go to the hospital." And, um, you know, that's, that's going to lead to a delay in EMS being called, and that's going to lead to deaths. I, th- I think it's that black and white, that simple. And I think uh, an important thing to note here is um, are we utilizing, and again, I know we're kind of painting our own, like, you know, all of us are in Maryland, or kind of painting our Maryland view onto this spot in Connecticut, but um, are we using the tools we already have? 
right? Are we using, are we actually assessing a mental status to see, are they act, do they actually have capacity, right? Um, uh, that's, that's a tool that I've been able to successfully use a, f- a couple times, not all the time, especially, I mean, folks, if they're alert oriented by the time I show up, then, you know, there's a limited amount of things I could do. But, um, uh, the question I would ask is what interaction, they obviously have had interaction with EMS because this isn't the first time that they, you know, tried to push the bill through and, it, and, uh, uh, at least according to the Reddit poster, because of EMS lobbying against it, they weren't able to pass it last go around. What conversations, what interactions do they have with the, not only the emergency medicine community, but the emergency medical services community, uh, after they were, uh, unsuccessful in unsuccessful in passing the bill last year, uh, or did that conversation not happen? I wonder if that conversation happened at all, to be honest. But I think the bigger question is, what is the intent of the bill? What is the purpose of forcing these people to go to the hospital and get a, a psyche valve? I mean, it doesn't medically make a lot of sense to me to, to force somebody to, to go potentially get a 72-hour hold uh, just because they overdosed on an opiate or they were intoxicated on something else or, you know, whatever the case is. Um, I just, I, I can't, it, it almost seems punitive maybe towards these people uh, or perhaps, I mean, right, the, the road to hell is paved in good intentions, right? Maybe they really think this is going to fix the mental health or drug crisis in America and it's going to, force the hospitals to provide more mental health services like uh, on the uh, senator's Facebook page, she says. You know, I mean, maybe maybe it's that simple. Um, but I think the, the core issue that really comes up here is when we have people outside of health care trying to legislate health care and trying to direct health care. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're looking at. We're, we're taking a, a law enforcement and a legislative stance to try to direct how healthcare is delivered in the street, and that doesn't make any sense. So I agree completely with you, Ken. And um, this has been seen. This is not the first time it's been seen that politics getting involved in how street care, we'll just say street medicine, is delivered, and how we handle. Uh, EMS and these patients has been handled incorrectly. Uh, Whether it's the information that's being presented or the person that is leading it, in this case, it's a police chief and this uh, state senator. You know, there's no, you know, as far as we know, this state senator has no involvement in EMS, has never been involved in EMS. There's nothing stating that they are a former. ED physician, PA, nurse, anything like that. They are getting their information from, unfortunately, and I'm not trying to dog my law enforcement brothers and sisters out there, a law enforcement officer that may have very little interaction at this point in this crisis. Uh, you know, they are a police chief of a department who knows how long they've been oh, removed from the street. Yeah. You know, um, what's the, what are they dealing with within their own department, within their township, city, whatever municipality they work within, uh, and then bringing this topic that they believe is wholly important, but in reality could be quite challenging and quite 
hurtful to what the progress that we have made in this realm. Uh, and the, the part where the senator states that they want to try and um, imbue the, the hospital with improving their psychiatric care and, their bring, and bringing new things to the table for these patients that, in their mind, from what it sounds like, they're straight up saying that these patients need psychiatric care. That's the big thing of them going to the hospital. All three of us know that anyone that goes for a 72-hour hold very rarely gets the acute psychiatric care that they need in the time, if they need it. Uh, they are going to be held for 72 hours to make sure that they are medically cleared, up to 72 hours, and then maybe be sent to a psych facility or discharged or be held somewhere longer because right now the psych facilities are overwhelmed, overwhelmed just like every other part of healthcare. Yeah. Um, we see this not only in psych cases. We see people that have chronic issues that are undiagnosed or untreated, and they believe that tonight or today or this morning, whenever time they call, they're going to get the answers at the ED, and they're going to be provided with all the prescriptions, all the tests to determine what is going on tonight right now. And I know we've all had the discussion with these patients that that's not going to happen, unfortunately. And in turn, these patients that are overdoses are not going to get maybe the psych care they need, maybe the counseling they need for addiction. Um, it's, it's not an acute thing. This is going to be like time spent that the hospitals are going to refer out. And it's just going to be a never-ending cycle, and we're just going to erode that back to that beginning point, erode that public trust with these patients because, unfortunately, we will probably see them over and over again, and it will happen over and over. And like Ken said, eventually they won't call. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the whole 72-hour cycle thing is a little bit of a fallacy. Like, I get when somebody is actively suicidal and they need crisis intervention, maybe within that time frame we can start to help them get out of that state of mind and get them somewhere longer term to help them. And that's kind of what that's for, right? But if you have somebody who has an addiction because and they've got an underlying mood disorder or, you know, whatever going on, um, you're not going to even begin to address that within 72 hours. And it's really probably not the appropriate place to address that inpatient in a lot of cases. I mean, what they need is an outpatient psychiatrist who they, and a therapist who they can work with over a period of time. And I don't know that that's really getting set up appropriately in that 72 hour window and in fact I, I mean i know it's not um you know the resources one aren't there and when they are there they're not easy to access in a lot of cases so it's uh i i think it's at best uh idealistic the intentions of this bill um again that's being done probably by people who don't understand the system and I, th I think that's what it comes down to. They don't, they don't understand the healthcare system. They don't understand mental health. They don't understand addiction. And I'm not saying I'm an expert on any or all of those things, but I think I know a little bit more about them than probably the people who wrote this bill. Uh, agreed. And um, also, while this bill directly influences, once again, the street care of these patients with the police and EMS, does this bill have anything to do with or have any impact on you show up at the hospital and that patient gets off your stretcher, walks out the front door, and leaves AMA? 
We have all seen it. We will continue to see it regardless of this bill in Connecticut or any bill like this anywhere else progressing forward. Um, all too often, we have patients of these types that are demographics or the, the uh, whatever, whatever you call it, uh, leave the hospital. And this bill, from what it looks like, does nothing to fix that. Um, so, I think you made a very interesting point. Um, there's just a lack of psych facilities. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, there's a lack of all faci- a lack of all facilities, but there's especially a lack of psych facilities, and um, I don't know. I, I the other thing that we should mention here, which everyone listening to this right now already knows of this, there's a very strained relationship between uh, the police and the people they serve, right? Yes. So mm-hmm. this has to be taken in the context of that in a in an environment where trust with police is already being eroded, why would we do something like this that could potentially make that relationship worse? And I do want to believe that um, this police chief and this senator are truly motivated to fix the problem. I think in a situation where the problem gets so bad, people start people from outside of the healthcare world want to reach, start reaching for straws, right? They're trying to grasp for anything that might stick, right? Because that's truly what we're at. We're, we're truly at a crisis. Um, what's really interesting to me is there are other solutions out there. Um, Maryland is uh, going to be, uh, I believe, I don't know where the status is of the protocol, but um, uh, EMS initiated buprenorphine as part of mobile integrated health. Um, that's a, a, I actually pulled up the paper while you guys were talking. Um, and it's, uh, let's see, pre-hospital buprenorphine treatment for opiate use disorder by paramedics. First year results of the EMS buprenorphine use pilot. Uh, it's by H. Jean Hearn et al. Pre-hospital emergency care 2022. And I'm not going to read through the, I mean, maybe if it's okay with you, I'd like to read through the background of the study, but, um, uh, so background, pre-hospital initiation of buprenorphine treatment for opiate use disorder by paramedics is an emerging potential intervention to reach patients at greatest risk for opiate-related death. Emergency medical services patients who are, who are at high risk for overdose deaths may never engage in treatment as they frequently refuse transport to the hospital after naloxone reversal. That's exactly what we're talking about. The, potential, the potentially important role of EMS... As, as the initiator for medication for opiate use disorder in the most high-risk patients has not been well described. So, um, we won't go through the setting or anything. The results, there were 36 patients, I admit, very small, right? Uh, there were 36 patients enrolled in the trial study in the first year who received buprenorphine. Of those patients receiving buprenorphine, only one patient signed out against medical advice on scene. That's remarkable in itself. All other patients were transported to an emergency department and their clinical outcome and seven-day and 30-day follow-ups were, were determined by the substance use navigator. 36 of 36 patients had follow-up data obtained in the short term and none experienced any precipitated withdrawal or other adverse outcomes. Patients had a 50% rate of treatment retention at seven days and 36%. That's 14 out of 36 patients uh, were in treatment at 30 days. That's remarkable. And was this Philly? Is that... Um, I can I can look in. It's I can, not I, a huge deal. I was just yeah. curious. I I thought they were doing something like that up there. 
And I'm just going to read the conclusion real quick. In this small pilot project, paramedic initiated buprenorphine in the setting of data sharing and linkage with treatment appears to be a safe intervention with a high rate of ongoing outpatient treatment for risk of fatal opiate overdoses. I would like to say that it's critical that we're not giving buprenorphine in a silo, right? We're connecting them to the uh, follow-up resources in the public health network wherever you're working. So that, that, that that's critical, and that's what they mean by setting in, in, in the setting of data sharing and linkage with treatment. But that almost seems like maybe a solution that might work for this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I know we're not because obviously the overarching theme of that bill, at least the way I understood it, was overdoses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems like a solid shot. It, yeah. it is a a method to help curb it without a road. If any, it's not going to erode our public trust. It's going to hopefully enhance it because. The people involved in, um, well, the patients involved in this hopefully are going to speak with um, those they interact with. Like, hey, they actually care about us. They're trying to help me. Like, they're trying to help me do this or that. You know, trying to get me better. Um, I think the one downside of the whole thing is um, mobile integrated health, you know, or community paramedicine is still, while it's been around, probably you know known of in like the past 20 25 years it's still i feel like in infancy in major areas uh can i believe your department actually has somewhat of a robust mobile integrated health department whereas yeah. mine which is a large department as well is a very small mobile integrated health uh it's run by a handful of people a lot of it's overtime and there's not as much interaction with the public on a day-to-day basis. Uh, so it's very dependent on what your area, jurisdiction, department can sustain. You know, uh, I don't know, Ken, if you want to speak to your department's uh, MIH. Um, yeah, sure. So I was actually involved with it uh, when it got off the ground. I, I worked, it started off as an overtime gig. Um, I'm not really involved with it anymore, which is to say I'm not involved with it anymore. Uh, But uh, we do run a nurse practitioner unit that tries to mitigate the low priority calls and deal with, uh, you know, minor stuff that they can treat on the street and refer out. And then they also have a uh, follow-up unit that goes out to, like, high-risk patients and they try to, you know, assist them with resources and, and, you know, prevent hospital readmissions. So from what I understand, it's been pretty effective. I, I haven't seen any data on it myself, so I, I couldn't really speak to any hard numbers. But uh, it sounds like it's it's moving in the right direction. The ge- the, oh, sorry, the, I just want to say the general trend that I've understood, not in any one of your specific uh, departments, but just from my general understanding of MIH is uh, MIH works great until we pull the resources away and then the patients go right back to where they were, which kind right. of makes sense, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's kind of intuitive. We we are providing a Band-Aid, uh, but the overall solution is not there. Right. Because right. I don't know what that overall solution is, right? Like, I mean, the overall solution would be to get them into the healthcare system and provide them the access they need that we... EMS is the Band-Aid. We sh- there should be, like anything else, EMS should be the Band-Aid until there's definitive care. I just don't know what the definitive version of primary care is. What I found when I worked MIH was what a lot of people really needed was a case manager because a lot of what we did was just 
making sure they get their prescriptions, making sure they're set up for appointments, making sure they're taking their medicine. And I feel like a lot of people just get to a point where they have a hard time taking care of themselves and doing those. You know, it's a perfect example. You know, my dad uh, would be in that position if it weren't for me taking care of all of his medical stuff. And not everybody has a family member who can do that for them, you know? Uh, a lot of people just need transportation set up for them to get to their doctor's appointments. And that's that's a lot of what we did or th what they're still doing in MIH where I work. Um, I, I don't know. That was my experience with it. So in the realm of what we uh, talked about or are talking about overall, do you know if they're engaging the um, opiate epidemic within your jurisdiction or knowing your jurisdiction and how rampant it is in that specific one is it just too big of a a monster for mih to handle right now so when i was involved and this has been several years that was an exclusion criteria opiate addiction um that said it's been a few years so mm -hmm. i don't know okay that's interesting that's interesting I believe, I, let me say, I believe that was an exclusion criteria. Um, so I, I don't want to completely misspeak, but I'm, okay. I'm like 98% sure. Okay. Hmm. I, I don't know on ours. I have yeah. no involvement other than engaging with some of the patients on a uh, uh, acute setting, not on a MIH setting that are involved in or followed within our MIH, MIH realm. Yeah. So. And, and I'll tell you what. I'll be the first to admit, I don't really know what, like, the case manager social worker world entails. I, I, I have a buddy of mine who's actually, he's a medical student, but he's here for a month. And uh, he was telling me, he's like, caseworkers just work magic. They he's do. Like, they just show up, and they, they make stuff happen. I can tell you, again, from dealing with my dad's health issues, dealing with his case workers and stuff like that, social workers, uh, they are absolutely amazing. They help me find all sorts of resources that I never would have found by myself. I mean, and it, it's amazing. If you guys want, we could have an episode about that whole realm. I know one who was a case manager, a nurse case manager a long time ago. And then uh, my wife is a social worker who works within a psychological rehab program as a... Oh, really? Yes. I did not know that. Yeah. So... That would be cool. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's something down the road we can talk about and see if yeah. she's willing to come on. Yeah, and talk. Or I mean, honestly, even in the next couple of weeks, because it's obviously within the the you know the what's the word, the current news cycle. Yeah. You know, I mean, if they're interested, uh, you know, I think that would be really great because I don't know anything about that world, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because like it is, what's the it's the LCSW right? Yeah. So what? that's a licensed clinical social worker. Okay. And then there's a LMSW, which is a license of masters of social work. Okay. So you, uh, and I'm sure I'll probably have to clarify this with my wife, but uh, she got her bachelor's in sociology, uh, ended up working in a couple um, psychological, mental health-ish type realms, uh, and then got her master's in social work. Uh, and once you get that, you're an LMSW, uh, and then you have to work under a supervisor of some sort for hours to get your LCSW, which uh, I cannot remember if you have to test for or not. You have to test for the LMSW and get that license, then work to LCSW. 
once you're in LCSW, I believe you can work completely on your own without any supervision or anyone. You can basically have your own practice if you wish. Uh, and But a LCSW works in a variety of realms. Uh, she is a uh, mental health therapist uh, okay. in a very specific track. Very specific track. Um, yeah. and, but that doesn't, her LMSW does not keep her in that track. She can, if she wished, she could move on to uh, child social services, adult social services, uh, any of those types of realms, uh, working within a hospital, working within a school system, working on um, mental health plans for students or, you know, um, working with those that have cognitive or um, uh, emotional difficulties in school, uh, all kinds of stuff. Mm. Uh, she chose to specialize in what she does, um, but she also has experience through being a director of a um, – uh, I guess small to moderate size company that uh, hmm. deals with psychological rehab and a lot of different demographics within that. Cool. So, uh, so the same people that are doing the casework are also the same people that are like mental health therapists. I cannot definitively huh. give you a good answer on that. Um, they may hold the same certification mm-hmm. or the same licensure, but they are supervised or taught or specialize in a certain way. So like what my wife specializes in, she is taking courses at the same time to progress her knowledge in this realm. Um, And then her supervisor is helping, you know, teach her along the way and, you know, stuff like that. So that's really interesting. Yeah. I had no idea. I I don't want to speak to it completely because yeah, of course course. I don't know all of it. I hope I know some of it. Yeah. Yeah. But so yeah, I, you know what I can't help but think about. I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but have you guys seen the new Joker movie? No. Yes. Okay, so you're gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. There's a very specific scene in the movie, and it's not a spoiler, where uh, the guy's talking to his therapist, or mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a therapist or a caseworker or something, and they something stra- in that realm. They straight up tell him we we're cutting the program. They cut the program. And that has a direct link to what the guy ends up doing. Would you agree? Yes. And that is such a great way, uh, such a great portrayal. Like when I was watching that, I I think that movie is very, it's it's a good movie for multiple reasons, but specifically how it addresses the current lack of resources for people. And just like you said, if they don't have someone, an advocate, you know, like you said, I mean, that's so fortunate to have someone like you who's so aware of the healthcare system. Um, you're so right. There's so many people that just don't have that, right? Even if they have family members, those family members, we've all been there where the family just, you know, they don't even, uh, they may not have had a clear understanding of what a, you know, how DNRs work mm-hmm. or how most forms work or how any, you know, a power of attorney. And, um, that movie did such a good job of capturing and the, and the guy's like, he, you see the spiral and honestly, you don't even realize it cause you're kind of going with the main character down that spiral. Until the end, you're like, oh, my God, they did a th- that movie is about, among other things, the effects of lack of proper mental health care. Yes. To our most vulnerable populations. Um, you know, while this did go down a tangent, it does tie back to, I think, one of the key things that maybe we didn't we didn't say in the beginning is. So this, you know, it does tie in. So the eroding of the public trust with the EMS. 
Uh, I'm sure we've all been taught, and I know I teach it to my students, you guys teach it to your students, I'm sure, that we are the advocate for our patients. And with this possibility of this bill, not only in Connecticut, but it, who knows, gaining traction elsewhere, if it does become a real thing, we lose the ability to advocate for that patient. Um, you know, sometimes this patient is uneducated, does not know what is best for them or what is going to hurt them in the end or be, you know, whatever. But us being able to say, hey, we believe that this patient should stay home sometimes, even if it was an overdose or um, advocating this patient does need to go to the hospital for X, Y, Z reason or you know, if your MIH program within your agency, your county, whatever, allows um, inclusion criteria of opiate overdose, getting them resources from your municipality and seeing if we can't or, um, start this on a positive path of less interactions to no interactions with this patient in the future, uh, which hopefully would only produce good results, honestly, in the end. Um, and it, it just ties back to the, the key thing that the original Reddit poster said, that this will erode the trust with the public. Not so much the public, the patients that we deal with. Um, so, Yeah, one other thing that we touched on and we didn't really dive into is that it is the law enforcement officer's discretion whether or not they... Uh, force these people to go to the hospital and that to me is really kind of shaky ground too you know it's not like we're saying okay everybody we're saying we're gonna pick and choose i don't really like that especially because ems doesn't pick or choose we have clear clinical clinical criteria uh, like capacity like vital signs like you know mental status and when that doesn't happen um we have a we have a direct line to the i mean i was kidding about it earlier before we start recording or maybe we were recording but we have a direct line to medical control medical direction that often we utilize i've utilized it plenty of times um the uh, one of the aspects one of you mentioned or maybe i read it was the law enforcement officer would have a direct line to medical control I find that to be sort of concerning because they don't have the training to do so. I I think this, like many other things, uh, is this um, uh, merging of jobs, which should not be occurring. Law enforcement has a law enforcement role. EMS has an EMS role. Both of those folks should know what's in their lane and what's not in their lane. And also, folks should know who's in charge of the call, right? Depending on what's going on. Uh, and I know I'm sure you guys are, I'm only echoing what others in the state have said um, leaders who other leaders have said uh, you should be taking charge and have ownership of your incident depending on if it's a medical call or a law enforcement call and take the initiative to advocate for your patient like Josh said um, I, I find it very interesting that uh, not interesting I find it concerning that these uh, you know these uh, the jobs are starting to merge and there's no clear direction. And I think one of the biggest things that we can in rebuilding trust is delineating exactly whose job is what. I, I agree. And, uh, you know, speaking to 
you know, who's in charge of the scene, who is, you know, managing the medical care, who's managing the legal side or the law enforcement side, and how uh, these lines could be blurred. Um, I, within the past couple of months, had an incident where uh, we were called for a agitated patient that when we got there, the patient said, yes, I do want to go to the hospital. So place him on the stretcher. Afterwards, immediately afterwards, he said, no, I don't want to go to the hospital. You know, was made sure that he could make his own decisions. He's, you know, answered everything appropriately. Okay, off the stretcher. We stayed on scene at the request of police in case anything did come from it. And eventually he did become a medical patient. But it was one of those things like understanding where the boundaries are. And, you know, um, the police officers on scene saying, hey, is there anything you can do to intervene? I'm like, no, this is not that level right now. We have not switched into this is a patient of mine. This is still a suspect subject, uh, person you're interacting with mm-hmm. and understand where that line is. Um, and it can be confusing. It really can be because you're not quite sure is what is being exhibited by this, uh, person, this patient person, whatever they are at the time, uh, is, is it something medical in nature? Do I, or is it purely something else? Mm-hmm. Um, not to, try and uh, use the wrong terminology so no no i, I absolutely agree yeah. no i mean <laughs> I, no, so like um I, and, and i would also say especially you two recognize how hard these situations can be i mean especially these uh, you know supervisors because a lot of times i imagine you know you're called because your ground crew is in a tough situation you know i almost don't envy you for that reason because uh i can only imagine (laughs) yeah it's one of my least favorite things that i deal with on a regular basis is uh, a crew particularly like a bls unit gets there and they're like this person's acting crazy we don't know what to do and the police won't get involved and you know, what, whatever's going on is going on. And I get there, I'm like, okay, well, number one, is this person really a, a threat to themselves or others? And if they are, why aren't the police doing anything about it if they're not? Or if they are, um, you know, what, like you said, do they have capacity? Like, what's, what's going on here? Um, and I don't enjoy it. One of my least favorite things to do is to chemically restrain somebody. Uh, I hate doing it. Unfortunately, I find myself doing it more and more. Um, not that I am finding people to do it to for fun, but it just seems, no, of course you know, there's, yeah. there's something, yeah. there's something going around the streets where I work, where, sure. yeah. <laughs> where unfortunately it's happening, either that or I've just had bad luck. Um, but no, it's not my favorite thing to do. And, uh, you shouldn't envy me because <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. it's not fun. And you do get these calls where it's like, does this person have capacity or not? And I've, I've had it go both ways where somebody's, you know, acting agitated and they're not necessarily a threat to themselves or anybody else like josh was just saying but they're not acting normal and it it becomes a question of are they all there do they have capacity do they understand that something bad could happen to them you know can they articulate that to me and uh it's tough. Sometimes it's a no-win situation, you know. If uh, if they don't meet the criteria for the police to EP them, and we don't feel they're safe, you get stuck, and it's not good. There's yeah. there's no winning that situation, no matter um, what you do. 
I've been encountered with the the question from other providers within my agency uh, on a couple of occasions, probably more than a couple of occasions, uh, as I've been at different stations around uh, my department. Of so in Maryland, uh, for those that are from Maryland, you should know that this protocol, the agitation protocol, uh, as Moose just pulled it up, like we're on the same wavelength on this. Um, has a couple different categories of what agitation is and what we should do with certain levels of agitation. And the, co- the question that I hear is, why should I use ketamine? And why should I use Versed slash uh, Draperidol um, and previously Haldol? You know, what, what's the situation? I can't tell, you know, when this is going to come up. Like, I, I don't know as a provider. And I'm not speaking to myself. I'm speaking to these providers coming to me. What 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 means what meets the criteria of severe agitation, moderate agitation, uh, and to try and relay this is it, it, a dicey topic. Even as a, an educator and as a fellow provider, to try and um, emulate or to relay in a very easy manner that is not what the protocol says in very straight medical terms trying to relay what you see on scene with mm-hmm. these patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's difficult. Uh, the way I've always taught uh, others, what, the way I've thought with myself, is your moderate agitation is your patient that may just be having a psychotic break, that may just be belligerent. They, mm-hmm. don't, they don't want to receive the care because if they need the care too, you know, say they've um, – been injured and they're intoxicated or they just refuse help and their injury is you know severe maybe moderate and you need to do something to take care of these patients you know that's that's your moderate agitation where they're danger to themselves they're danger to the providers but they don't have so much of the medical or the drug-induced condition that is creating other issues and then you get into the severe agitation or as some may still know it as excited delirium even though that word is not even found in dsm-5 it is a thank emergency, you for that up. emergency medicine only termed term uh but you should say what dsm-5 is uh the dsm-5 is what is it Di- diagnostic statistical volume it's a it's 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 a book that my wife, my wife will kill me for not knowing yeah this one. The, basically the mental health dictionary basically yeah. any so mental health you, Use it to diagnose any mental health disorder, uh, it, and it, it describes yeah diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders fifth edition yes uh, by the American Psychiatric Association. So this is used to diagnose mental health disorders. Back to the original point, that severe agitation, or as we used to call excited delirium, is that patient that um, is truly a danger to themselves not only because of their actions of what they're doing. You know, whether they're hitting something, trying to hit themselves, trying to run into traffic, um, doing things that will endanger their physical well-being, but also have a physiological issue going on that is causing them to spiral out of control. Um, Our severe agitation patients, we're looking for those that are tachypnic, tachycardic, hypertensive, profusely diaphoretic, um, not making any sense. They are not alert and oriented. They may be speaking gibberish. They may be speaking to you in some form of tongues. Uh, they are not acting themselves, and they are unable to be controlled. 
and these patients the ketamine is then you know warranted to sedate them so that we don't have an issue of their physiological problems causing a uh, cardiac arrest you know getting to that point of uh what's i just saw the words the other day on a ce um where they become sedated sedated without or they uh overall oh, calm um uh tranquility of some sort yeah a uh, period um, of tranquility yeah where that immediately precedes the cardiac arrest where they just kind of all of a sudden calm down and oh oh yeah uh, and then is that arrest the follows mm-hmm. yes huh. it is i just sudden tranquility i think yeah something like couldn't that. come to me uh-huh. but you know back to ken's point these patients we don't it's it's a very dicey subject of how we handle them um and trying to figure out what is the correct course of treatment. And Ken, it may be because you are a supervisor that you're seeing more of these because you are seen as the higher authority, the higher level of knowledge, experience, and you're just in that role where you're going to see this more often. Uh, I do know in my jurisdiction, I don't know if it's moving up the highway or not, uh, PCP is back with a vengeance in my jurisdiction, uh, and it has been for years. You can keep it down there. Hey, I have a uh, question for you guys. Uh, I, but, you know, both of you guys are in the field. The one thing that I feel no one ever talks about is your own reaction, your own fear, your own uh, you know sense to get scared in front of someone that's displaying this kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. How do you guys manage your own? Because I'm not ashamed to say it. I, I, I frankly remember a couple patients where I, I was very concerned. And yes, law enforcement was there. I'm not going to get into details, but... It's it, it logically even you may not be in danger, but your own physiological response to that danger of someone in front of you that's acting this way. How do you guys deal with that? So, it, uh, go ahead. I can speak to an actual incident that in, I was involved in that I did get attacked by someone on. He said Molly, but he was also known to use PCP. Um, the interaction was uh, par for the course with this patient. Uh, we had encountered him many times before. Always the same complaint of some kind of um, perceived um, physical inability to move due to drug use. Um, he was always found walking around or standing, but said he could not walk, whatever. Um, when the patient was moved to the stretcher after a lot of talking and um, consoling, you know, a lot of, you know, just trying to work with the patient, be their advocate, be like, you know, let's get you to the hospital. You know, let's, let's work on, you know, moving and let, you know, things are working. You're okay. Um, when patient was then, when we went to go place the patient on the stretcher, uh, I went to turn his hips to put him on the stretcher and he wrapped me up in a bear hug and brought me down to the stretcher and held me for 30 to 45 seconds. Um, and not just like, you know, hey, you know, I want to hug you, as was in the police report. No, wrapped me up, held me, and, like, brought me into his chest and was not letting go. Like, a very obvious physical act. Um, and after that, at once getting away, you know, had luckily had myself, um, uh, ALS student, and my ambulance crew. We worked on moving me out of there, and then we had to sedate the patient. And it's one of those things where, you know, at the end of it, I was like, I still have a job to do. I still have to make sure that this patient is sedated so that I don't get involved in this or hurt or my the rest of my crew. And you kind of have to take a moment to like take a couple of breaths 
and work through it. And I don't know if that's because of other stuff within, I guess, uh, experiences in life that you, know, you have to kind of still work through a problem when you've encountered a high level of stress. Uh, but I just kind of took a couple breaths, decided, okay, we need to draw up ketamine. We need to give this very quickly. And luckily I had a paramedic student with me who assisted me in that process and we took care of it and mitigated the issue and off we went. So, uh, I don't know, Ken, if you want to speak to that. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. I think EMS breeds a level of, of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I just had it in my head. Um, desensitization to things and it doesn't necessarily have to be exactly the situation you're in but it's a high stress environment that you've learned to function in where after a while you're able to kind of step next to yourself or outside of yourself and be like okay this isn't good but we have a job to do exactly like Josh said you know I can specifically remember uh, well several of my agitated delirium patients but one in particular the guy was cutting himself with a broken mirror he was attacking us he was um i mean going going off the handle and we we sedated him um got him out to the ambulance and he woke up and we were going down the road it's it's myself and this other paramedic and this guy wakes up and he just he looks at me and it's a look I will never forget. It was the most pure hatred. It was like he was, this is how I've described it. He was a predator and I was his prey. And we, we thank God had him tied down because he started getting up again and we had to sedate him again. Um, whether or not the drug that the initial crew gave was maybe the best thing they could have given is in question. Um, however, after the second sedation, the patient was in fact sedated. Um, but that was, it, that was actually terrifying for me. Like when looking in this guy's eyes and I, I literally thought like he wants to eat me. Like that's what I thought, but you got a job to do and he's coming at us and getting out of his restraints and it's me and this other paramedic and you do what you got to do, you know, <laughs> um, just like, you know, I had a lady trying to run into traffic couple weeks ago um we got her on the stretcher and she kicked me in the face and it is what it is Mm -hmm. you know it just happens sometimes (laughs) i guess it's not i mean it's not okay it's not funny um but sometimes especially these these really extremely agitated people like the the first one i described um or like the guy i found attacking his uncle one day um I mean, it's it's scary, but you just have to step outside and have a sense of that professionalism, and it's it's not it's not any different, I guess, than uh, you know your first shooting or your first cardiac arrest or something like that. You know, it's uh, it's a unique situation, and is there more of a threat of physical harm? Yes, but you got to do it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that was I mean, a feel, succinct answer. No, it is. <laughs> I, I feel like it broaches into a topic we want to talk about in the future is uh, mental health yes. of providers. Yes. Um, and how we handle those things. 
because uh, a lot of people, I think, would say desensitization isn't the greatest way to handle it, but it's how we handle it. It <laughs> is. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I mean, you kind of said it already. Um, it's hard. And, and before we finish, I do want to read over that protocol because I think it'll still be useful. But it's hard to translate those protocol words as mild, moderate, severe agitation to exactly what you were talking about. The how's the patient actually presenting in front of me? How do I? How am I reacting to it? And what am I supposed to do? And it's very hard to. You can't replicate that in a classroom either. Uh, I don't know unless you guys have seen that. You can. I. I, I don't know. I've seen some like uh, you. Obviously, you guys have seen a lot more. Than I have. I'm like even the crap that I've seen, especially where I worked for a little a bit and still do part time. Some of the stuff I saw there, you can't really make up in a in a, in a classroom unless right. you've had a, a, no, a, I, an instructor who's done it. It's you, just you really can't. Yeah, you, know, you can't replicate the guy that is completely tranquil and fine, and as soon as the parking brake sets at the hospital, it's you know the boxing ring in the, the back ring, of the yeah. medic unit. Yeah. Um, or the guy that is standing in the middle of traffic, guy or girl standing in the middle of traffic, shirt off, sweaty, making no sense, um, and just running around doing who knows what in the middle of the street or in their house or wherever we find them. Um, and it's one of those uh, learned, hopefully you learn it as a student. Hopefully you're in a jurisdiction or an agency, a department, education system, that you get maybe a glimpse into the one of those situations before it's you pushing that plunger, making that decision to uh, break that seal on that narc, or having to push your EV button on your radio. Um, and, uh, and that's unfortunately the... <laughs> the nature of the beast of this job we don't always see it before we are prepared to and then we're called to act one of the hard things about ems education right because there's no way to guarantee in your clinical hours you're going to have a STEMI, a shooting a stroke Mm -hmm. an agitated delirium um you know child abuse pediatric arrest you know there's no way to promise that you will actually experience any of these things during your education so it really falls back on the educator to impart their experience and knowledge and try to form those critical decision-making and critical thinking skills and those assessment skills on the student. And that's very hard because exactly like you just said, Moose, translating the words from a protocol or a guideline into what you see in a clinical presentation or even from a textbook to a clinical presentation. I can tell you that somebody who's tripoding diaphoretic has rails and, uh, you know, productive cough probably has a pulmonary edema issue. But if you have never seen any of those things and you run into that patient, you may not be able to put those words to that picture. You know, it's, it's not any different, whether it's the, you know, patient in respiratory extremis or the patient who's severely agitated. And that, that is difficult. Um, you know, sometimes you, you just have to learn trial by fire, unfortunately, and that's not ideal. But in the healthcare world, what else can you do unless you start mandating, like, you know, a two-year clinical rotation for a paramedic student in the, you know, a level one ED or something like that. You know, that how else are you going to... And there are programs that do that. Yeah, um, they're few and far between, and they have a very well-renowned um, uh, 
reputation, renowned right. reputation within uh, EMS. But it's tough. You know, you you have to have a program that does it, and I feel like that approaches into a whole other yes topic. Well, and I mean, <laughs> well, 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 no, but I want to do. I want to bring this back because there's there is a connection between what we talked about. House Bill sixty five eighty one, right? The one of the biggest concerns I think we all shared was having a law enforcement officer have the discretion to make the decision of medical capacity and severity of illness. Uh, what did we just talk about for the past 15 minutes? EMS education, you know, provider education, provider experience. And we're now potentially, from my interpretation, uh, did I say provider? Oh, oops. Uh, uh, clinician. Uh, I don't know what I was talking about. No, but like, uh, you know, we're, we're potentially putting this very uh, important, intimate medical decision into the hands of someone that has no medical training. Yep. Right? Um, and sure, we can bridge them to whatever physician we want to, but I think it's critical to have EMS a part of that conversation. Um, and it comes down to, like both of you said, advocating for that patient. That patient, like you said, I mean, I guarantee you, you during the bear hug, after that, you were still advocating for You would have advocated for your patient. You know, like, and it, it, that's the job that we have been asked to do or have, you know, or that the job that, you know, you guys do um so yeah i i don't know any last comments on the on we'll the hospital itself yeah. talk about that protocol real quick oh, yeah. so that we can uh since we're not just you know we have maryland listeners we have people all over and i know uh in certain parts of the country um ketamine is a bad word uh it is uh boohist um and i believe there's actually a uh, current um legal fight in a midwestern to western state that does not use ketamine right now that um it's uh, interesting to see how it's going to go with a patient that did die in care from what sounded like a severe agitation issue so yeah absolutely so um we'll we'll talk this through for our listeners so the maryland agitation for uh, adult agitation protocol it starts with uh breaking down indications so indications the reason you would do a protocol or perform a protocol um they describe symptoms of agitation in an adult to be mild moderate or severe uh mild symptoms patient is agitated but cooperative and making rational decisions no immediate concern for patient or clinician safety Moderate symptoms are defined as uh, the patient is ir- irrational and exhibiting behavior that puts themselves or clinicians at risk. And severe symptoms, a patient is physically violent and presents an immediate and imminent threat to themselves or others. I think Josh did a great job of describing exactly what that was. I don't know if you want to review again, like like running around in traffic or putting you in a bear hug. Uh, that, uh, and also... And I believe, I don't know if it goes further into it, we need to consider when it comes to severe agitation, uh, our physiological signs, our vital signs. Um, you know. Oh, yeah, that goes into it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, our moderate agitation, they may be a little tachycardic, a little tachypneic, a little hypertensive because they are stressed out about the situation that's going on. They're not happy. But your severe agitation are going to be the people that are absolutely diaphoretic. They're stripping off all their clothes in zero-degree weather. Um, they are running around, uh, they are unable to sit straight, work straight, whatever it is in the environment that you encounter them in. Like I said, tachycardic, tachypnic, hypertensive, um, and hopefully hypertensive, I'll say that, because if they're hypotensive, you're catching the downwind end of it. But uh, that's just something to take into consideration. And mind you, 
This is if you can get those vitals. Yeah. These severe agitation patients, you typically will not be able to, and you're only going to be going off of how they're acting and their diaphoretic. Yeah. So uh, in terms of uh, then the Maryland protocol goes to at the basic life support level, it basically says maintain scene safety and have a low threshold for requesting for law enforcement. I think that goes without saying. Um, it goes into assessing the patient's capacity and risk for self-harm. So we don't need to go into capacity now, but I feel we've talked we, about it before. We should do a capacity episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel like I did one. I guess we just never published it. But um, uh, it says uh, place the patient in a supine position, face up as soon as practical. I can't stress that. Uh, we don't need to go into the recent events, but can't stress that mm-hmm. enough. And consider causes of agitation. Is it uh, a medical cause? Is it a, a head trauma? Is it psychiatric? Or is it a drug alcohol in- ingestion? Um, and then we don't need to go through the safer model. But I mean, it, well, you guys can look up the Maryland Protocol if you want to. But then it uh, then it goes into ALS care. And that's where I, I really want to harp on. Um, for maj- uh, moderate agitation, it uh, states to evaluate for the source of agitation and treat accordingly. Treat as follows. So for medical delirium, uh, so the example they give is infection. They can uh, say give droperidol, 2.5 milligrams intramuscularly. For psychiatric emergency, like schizophrenia or a patient off of their prescribed medications, they also recommend droperidol. Uh, but for drug or alcohol ingestion or head injury, they re- recommend midazolam, 5 milligrams intramuscularly, and then 2.5 milligrams for patients sixty of uh, age of 69? Yeah, uh, 69, 69 or older. Uh, or older. Um, and then finally, the unknown or other category. And notice they don't really go into ketamine until severe agitation. Um, yes. And even in the severe agitation protocol, and I should say this, uh, follow your local protocols. We're just reading off the Maryland one. And you should also read your Maryland protocol before doing anything. This doesn't count as that. Um, but for severe agitation, they say Versed, midazolam, 5 milligrams IMIV. Again, half it for folks 69 or older. Or ketamine one milligram per kilo ivio with a max of 100 milligrams or ketamine four milligrams per kilo intramuscularly with a max of 400 milligrams if there is immediate and imminent danger uh to patient or ems uh, you want to comment on anything so far no um and i believe it, it does go down into uh here in maryland we have to if feasible we have to consult for ketamine for sedation, not for pain control, but for sedation. Uh, this is if there's no danger to patient or provider or those on scene. Um, if we're giving ketamine, uh, there's usually a situation that is harmful to one of those parties. Um, but take that in consideration. Uh, last time I did this, I consulted for it. Uh, I had a patient that I first gave Draperidol and Versed to. And it was not working initially, and I did consult and had the orders on standby if things got worse. Um, but uh, something else to consider with the ketamine is that if the patient is on PCP or some kind of analogous uh, drug cousin of PCP, ketamine is a uh, cousin of those drugs, and it will enhance the sedative effects of PCP. Uh, which then creates apneic episodes. Uh, we found this out on my shift when one of my partners gave this and a uh, patient of his went apneic for 15 minutes. He did notice as it happened, bagged, patient was apneic and they bagged through for 15 minutes. I had it happen to a patient for about five. Um, 
and our jurisdiction has since put out a clinical practice guideline stating that if we do give ketamine for sedation, we need to have a second provider, BLS or ALS, ride in the back with us in the event that this were to happen. So uh, it is a known side effect. It's not common when not associated with PCP or likewise medications or drugs, but it's something to think about if that's common in your area and something you're dealing with commonly. That's and that's why even the protocol says like following sedation, uh, perform the following interventions. And the first bullet is initiate cardiac monitoring. Uh, yeah. Initiate cardiac monitoring, continuous and tidal capnography, waveform capnography and pulse oximetry. Mm-hmm. And it says obtain 12 lead EKG to evaluate for prolonged QTC interval, um, evaluate for trauma, check blood glucose, check temperature and initiate patient. Oh, interesting. Patient cooling. I thought we. Well, well, we got rid of it for cardiac arrest. Uh, yeah, never mind. We won't go into that. As appropriate, uh, if tachycardic or hypothermic, hyperthermic, uh, initiate LR twenty cc's per kilo. Uh, flu bolus. Apply physical restraints as indicated in physical restraint protocol only when Im- imminent and immediate danger to self or others. Um, under the medical consultation, like you said, Josh, um, the ketamine should only be requires medical consultation unless immediate and imminent danger to patient or clinicians. Additional doses of medication beyond the first dose of droperidol, ketamine, or versed require medical consultation. And I like to throw this one in. This is cool. diphenhydramine, twenty-five to fifty milligrams IMIV may be administered if a dystonic reaction occur, occurs. Uh, something else to think about for any provider using uh, ketamine or any. Actually, I'll step it back to any agitated patient um, when these patients do become detained by police uh, we need to make sure that we have a provide a officer riding our officer sheriff um, law enforcement entity oh, my mic just moved but uh, needs to be riding in the back with us once they are in cuffs uh, if something were to happen where they go into cardiac arrest or something worse happens we need to be able to free those hands uh, we should not be placing this patient on the stretcher with hands behind the back Absolutely not. This is going to cause undue pain and issues with the patient. It could make them more agitated. And if something were to happen, it makes the situation that much more difficult to deal with. Um, Something I've been doing for years, and I think it even came out from the state probably 10 years ago, was um, we're going to do one high. So you're going to take one Mm -hmm. arm and put it up above the head and cuff it to somewhere high on the stretcher. And then the next one is going to be down low on a side rail. Uh, it makes it so that they can't reach out at you as easily. It's not horribly uncomfortable for the patient from anecdotal experience of seeing this. I've not been placed in this. Um, but that's going to make it easier to facilitate doing vitals, doing uh, administering medications. Um, but at a minimum, uh, the patient's hand should not be behind the back uh, or even restrained in front of them. Uh, we're going to shoot for either side rails or one low and one high. Uh, so just remember that uh, with positioning your patients appropriately, especially with things that have come up in um, EMS culture within the past month or two of placing mm-hmm. patients correctly on stretchers. Uh, yeah. So just remember that that's you know positioning positional asphyxia is a thing. So let's make sure we uh, don't cause it. Yeah. I just want to finish off with the clinical pearls they have here. So for ketamine, ketamine should be avoided if possible in the agitated elderly patient due to the risk for over-sedation and apnea. 
Um, advanced airway equipment, BVM, uh, oxygen, and suction must be immediately available at all times for patients receiving ketamine. And all patients that receive ketamine must be transported with at least two EMS clinicians, one of which must be an ALS clinician. That's what you described. Um, who's, who's, oh. Delivery guy. Oh, okay. Um, for severe agitation, patients with severe agitation should not receive... Okay. Uh, yeah, for... We'll just do the... So for severe agitation, patients with severe agitation should not receive Draperidol or Benadryl. For sedation, these medications may worsen anticholinergic crisis. And then finally for Draperidol, Draperidol may b uh, prolong the QTC interval, which increases the risk of cardiac arrhythmia. So does a growling dog. Do not administer Draperidol if QTC is known to be 440 milliseconds or greater. Uh, dystonic reactions, extrapyramidal symptoms may occur after administration of Draperidol. And then finally, Draperidol is contraindicated for pregnant patients. That was a great episode. That was. That was good. Any last thoughts? No. Josh, Ken? Well, I think we're good on that one. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to say, I mean, follow your local protocols. This is just the Maryland protocol. Even if you are in Maryland, please review your protocol. Do your normal educational stuff. This is for information only. Um, yeah, no, I think that was a really good conversation. I think very interested in seeing where that bill goes in Connecticut. Yeah. You know, and I'm very interested, again, if folks are listening from Connecticut, other places that have similar bills like this, we'd love to hear from you, you know, admin at com. If we got something completely wrong here, please let us know. We're, we're here to learn, uh, and we would love to, you know, provide that perspective to our listeners. Uh, you know, but we, you know, we see something like this, uh, happening and it's, it's of concern, at least at, at, at you know, at the surface, it, it's very concerning to folks that are, you know, in the field, doing the work, interacting with these patients and also law enforcement partners, uh, partners on a day to day basis. So yeah, w again, like I said, we'd love to hear your thoughts if, you know, we got something right or wrong. So cool. Can you want to close it out? Thank you, everybody, for listening to Alert Medic One. Please check us out on Facebook. Uh, leave us a like, a rating, a review on the podcast app of your choice. Have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful night, whatever time, wherever you are. Thank you from all of us here at Alert Medic One. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.